Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Cowkey. Today, I have as my guest, Adam Gordon, who is the CEO of a company called Candidate ID. You're in for a bit of a treat today, unless you're a recruiter, in which case you're probably going to feel slightly slighted by the conversation that's likely to ensue. So, Adam, welcome. Marcus, thanks so much for having me. It's a real privilege to be here. I I hope that nobody is offended and I'm not going to be rude about individual recruiters. I can promise you that. (laughs) Excellent. So, Adam, could you give us 60 seconds on your history thus far and how you got to this point in your work? working life. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm 44 years old. I think I grew up when I was about, I don't know, 34, something like that. On leaving university, I, uh, on leaving university, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but a friend of mine was two years older than me and he was a recruitment consultant and he was driving a Mercedes and I thought, that looks good to me, I'll go into that. And I, I didn't really know anything about it at all, but it went quite well, to be honest. After about a year, however, I did realize that actually interviewing people was not something I was interested in. I honestly didn't care about newly qualified chartered accountants coming out of Pricewaterhouse and KPMG. And they'd been told because they went to Russell Group universities and because they managed to get into Deloitte that they were among the elites. And they came in to tell me that they were elites. And I was like, mate, you're not. (laughs) You're just the same as the person I met half an hour ago. So anyway, that was kind of annoying, but, and actually a lot of my friends are accountants, but they, uh, I wasn't really interested in people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't really interested in, in, in talking to people about their careers, quite honestly, but I really enjoyed the, the marketing and the kind of talent attraction elements of recruitment. So I moved into recruitment marketing. I worked in, ironically, at PwC in the human resource services area. Uh, and. Uh, I started my own business in 2009, which was really when social media and LinkedIn were becoming really useful as sources of information. I basically set up a business to go and find information for organizations to help them identify lists of people they might want to hire. So in 2015, I was talking to Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, about our performance. And they said, yeah, it's going really great. 30% of the people that you're finding for us are not already on our applicant tracking system. So by so, implication, 70% were. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, that doesn't sound that great. I don't know why they're so pleased. And why they were so pleased was because they had 10 million people on their applicant tracking system, which if you're not in recruitment, I'll explain. That's basically a candidate database. It's a place to store resumes and people's names and phone numbers and email addresses. It's a system of record that doesn't do much except store information and enable workflows. So I asked some other companies, is this the same for you? And there was one organization which said, yeah, we've got about half a million. And that was the lowest, right up to Pfizer with 10 million people. So I decided that we needed to provide some kind of a talent nurture sort of service to help organizations keep in touch with these people so that they could stop being addicted, remaining addicted to job boards and LinkedIn and recruitment agencies and finding the same people over and over again. One company told me it was the fourth time that they actually approached somebody that they ended up hiring them. So, you know, they told me their cost per hire was like £4,000. But then when they realized that it was actually the fourth time that they approached that person, they worked out it was considerably higher than £4,000. 
How, how much considerably higher, just out of curiosity? Well, I think it was four times that. I mean, I think it was probably sixteen thousand pounds that they were that they were actually spending in terms of like people hours to go and get these jobs filled. We went and did that. We provided this kind of nurture service where we would create marketing communications and we'd send out emails and text messages and we used Bitly and we used Mailchimp and we used some kind of landing page builder and we used social media and then we realized that actually there were already technologies that were doing all of this but they were kind of pulling it all together in in marketing automation systems when we learned a bit more about that we realized there was nothing doing the same kind of thing in recruitment so we decided we had to go and build it and uh we stopped providing services and now we provide software. So, Adam, tell me this. You know, recruitment's a bit of a busted flush and it, it's earned the right to be seen as, you know, one above pond slime and one below being a lawyer because so many bad practices have, um, you know, crept in. And it's the single most important function any manager has is uh, hiring well. So first of all, why is it uh, that it's been relegated to this factory compliance, the cheapest candidate or work with the, uh, the lowest cost recruiter? It just strikes me as an act of complete idiocy. Well, there's a big discrepancy, isn't there, between the number of CEOs who say that you know their people are the most important asset within their organization. But They're yeah. ninth after paperclips. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I think it's not true in a lot of companies that they are the most important asset. So there's quite a lot of different reasons why recruitment is so broken, but one of them for me is definitely around regulation. It's such an important, really really important discipline as you've said, but anybody can go and do it. All you need is a LinkedIn account, a Zoom account, and you can set yourself up as a recruitment consultant and a recruitment agency, a full recruitment business. You don't really need anything else. And so as a result of that, there's very, very low barriers to entry. And while I agree with the concept of low barriers to entry because I'm a big advocate of social mobility and things like that, I think there needs to be you know, better professional standards and disciplines. So you don't really have people choosing to go into law or going into recruitment. You don't you know, get people considering, am I going to be an engineer or am I going to be a recruiter? Um, and you know, I guess there is another aspect to that, which is it is, a new, it is a pretty new profession. It used to get done by HR. And then before that, it used to just get done by managers. You know, the concept of personnel is something that only really existed since the late 70s. So the low barriers to entry and the relative youth of the profession itself, they're both big issues. Okay, so you talked about a whole heap of repetition and duplication in terms of the candidate candidate database on the applicant tracking system. Uh, but there's also a monumental amount of uh, replication and duplication in the recruitment process when employers go out to five or a dozen firms. And then there's this ludicrous race uh, to try and get uh, the date stamp on the CV in order to be first past the post in the hope that one of your candidates might be the one selected. And very often, 
that means that hiring organizations are inundated with a tsunami of CVs that are wholly inappropriate, but they're just trying to get the date stamped. So what advice would you give to any forward-thinking employer in order to get to stop that rubbish going on? So, yeah, just to just to add a, a bit extra for anybody that's not in recruitment or is not a hiring manager, you might not be familiar with this, but the way that most recruitment agencies get paid is on success. And that is absolutely fine. So the person signs the contract and is going to go and join the organization. That's the point where the recruitment agency can raise their invoice. However, the big problem happens when a hiring manager decides, I'm going to give this job to Michael Page and Robert Half and Robert Walters and Hayes and Reed and others, because actually they're all, they all occasionally take me to the racing or take me out for and cocktails or whatever it might be. So I'm just going to give it to them all so they keep you know, inviting me to things and think that I'm on their side. Well, yeah, what that means is that only one recruitment agency gets any fee. And you know, it could be five recruitment agencies get nothing. One of them gets everything. So it's a winner-takes-all scenario. And that means that encourages bad practice. It encourages things like, I'm going to tell you what I saw somebody do. When I was early in my days in recruitment in 1999 or 2000, I remember a guy who worked at the same company as me. And when he got a fax come through with a job description from a customer, he knew which other recruitment agencies were going to be getting that same fax at the same time. So he would immediately send a 500-page, or maybe not 500, but 50-page fax from him to his competitor recruitment agencies to clog up their fax machine so that they <laughs> could have like a you know two-hour head start on getting out to all the best candidates because inevitably, you know, he'd have he'd have 10 favorites and they'd have the same same 10 favorites. So it was a race, you know, and no doubt there's things like just like that that exist today. The instances, we've all we've all heard the instances where people's CVs get forwarded over to a company and the candidate has never even spoken to the recruitment consultant about it yet. I've heard horror stories of recruitment agencies taking people's profiles off LinkedIn and putting their recruitment agency, you know, logo at the top of the at the top of the the PDF and saying, yeah, I'm representing this candidate who they've never even spoken to. So it creates really bad practices. But you asked me about advice. My advice would be for almost every employer, the first thing to do is absolutely be doing your own recruitment. Building your own recruitment team would be certainly the first thing I would do. Now, that is not a strategy which is going to allow you to hire every position. Because what your recruitment team are going to be able to do is fill most of the easier to fill jobs. What they're not going to be able to do is spend a lot of time looking for the underwater basket weaver who speaks Swahili and Finnish. You're going to need uh, external recruitment agencies. I know three of them. Well, I mean, you're the person to go to if you need one of those. Absolutely. You could actually fill the shortlist, but not many people do know three of those. So I'm not at all suggesting that recruitment agencies don't have a place in the future. They absolutely do. But it's for the hard to fill jobs. Yeah, building your own team is definitely the first thing to do because a lot of those easier to fill jobs, they're going to be able to get through them fast. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, sorry, go on. 
I don't want to stop you in mid-flow, but you, you've pointed to a really clear application of a good technology-human partnership between the employer and decent AI that will take recruiters completely out of the frame for those easy-to-fill jobs because that data is out there on the internet and all the recruiters are doing is trying to pillage and scrape that data and get those CVs across to the employer. So they're, they're completely redundant and superfluous. Well, this is an interesting like angle to take on this conversation. I'll just give the the, the one other quick piece of advice. I'll come on Please. to that one second. Let's come on, just give the other one quick, quick, quick other piece of advice. And that is, if you have got a job that you need to go out to a recruitment agency for, go out to go out to one. Maybe talk to three or four, but only appoint one of them to actually represent your organization on getting this job filled. Because they will absolutely bust a gut to make sure that they get that job filled and they get that fee. If you're giving it to four or five different agencies, you're going to get bad service from every single one of them. You'll be lucky to fill the job, to be honest, because you've got, you know, their, their attention is completely split. On the point around AI and technology and where that's gone and what that means for human recruiters, you're absolutely correct. There is a lot of technology and investment that's gone into recruitment in the last five years, but it's very late, way behind fintech or marketing tech or health tech. It's way behind so many other business disciplines because HR and HR technology is considered really uninteresting compared to a lot of others. And so it's had VC money, like masses of VC money, much later on than most other areas of technology. So because of that, it's only really now that things like artificial intelligence and you know, various other uh, forms of automation are making their presence felt in, in, in recruitment. There are definitely ways of creating humanless recruiter processes. And Amazon have been doing it in the last couple of years. You can get a job working in an Amazon warehouse without talking to another human. So, you know, it can be done. It's not ever going to be done, I don't think, at the exec search level. You're not going to hire a chief marketing officer or a chief financial officer or a CEO. You're certainly not, you're not going to hire any of those without there being a really robust executive search process in place. But for most of the jobs below that level, arguably, there's not a lot of need for recruiters. What there is is a need for people who understand recruitment and cre can create processes and workflows and candidate experiences and employer brands. There is also a need for people who understand recruitment to be robot managers and you know, solutions architects. But in terms of things like interviewing and things like that, you don't need recruiters involved in that today. I spoke to one large company this morning who only six months ago stopped their stopped recruiters being involved in every single candidate interview. And they worked out that their recruiters were spending a third of their time in interviews, sitting alongside a hiring manager, holding their hand and basically guiding the direction of the conversation. Well, you need to train hiring managers how to do their own interviews and not sit babysitting them. So that was a you know, an eye-opener when I realized companies were still doing that. Well, th th this is a subject very close to my heart. 
a lot of the work that I do is training managers on how to recruit and how to hire because they haven't got a bloody clue. They hire in their own image only weaker. They hire because they like someone. They hire because they were referred by a mate. They hire because they look good on paper. But they have no idea how to get under the surface and under the skin of a candidate to work out, can this person do the job for which I am hiring them? And you, know, you, you see the turnover in sales in particular, which is my domain. You, know, you see turnover rates of 40 50% within a year. And I came across one very large German software company who in the mid-market was suffering average tenure of five months. Now, this is starting at basic salaries of 90 grand. And they get past the three-month guarantee period. So they've already blown the recruitment fee. And they're doing it two and a half times a year. It's crazy. It's insane. And these managers don't see recruitment as an integral central part of their job. They see it as an interruption to their real job, uh, which is putting out fires. So I couldn't agree more. Why is it that middle management in particular doesn't get any real training on how to recruit predictably? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. And, you know, you're right. I totally agree. While I don't think recruiters should be in interviews, it's a huge waste of their time and a waste of the company's time. I also do agree that managers are normally terrible interviewers and they need a lot more proper training around how to be good interviewers. And it comes back to something I've said to you before, which is CEOs often claim that people are their most important assets, but then don't prioritize the right activities within an organization to make sure that they have got brilliant people. It's more often than not, recruitment processes are bad experiences for candidates, bad experiences for hiring managers, and bad experiences for recruiters because they've been designed badly. Does the CEO ever get involved? No. Does the CEO get involved in anything HR-related? Very, very limited. But you're right about managers. Managers often, well, it's actually actually even worse than that. There's a scenario where high-performing producers often are the first to get promoted to become managers because employers want to keep them and they want to incentivize them and they want them to stay in the company, so they've got to give them career progression. But in actual fact, they were great at doing the job, but they were terrible at managing people to do the job. So, you know, that's 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 an even more deep-rooted issue is promoting people into management jobs who simply don't have the credibility or, or experience or personal characteristics to be a manager. So there's a lot of... Well, they're different completely different skill sets. Yes. Um, you know, to, to be a producer, typically you have to actually want to produce, uh, whereas to be a manager, you have to want to help other people to be successful. And that's pitifully lacking. The uh, Sander Research Center did a survey tail end of 2020 and identified that only 6%, that's 6% of managers in sales were fit for purpose. And precisely because of what you pointed to there, which is top producers get promoted into management when they're utterly unsuited to it. And they, they're also not trained. So let's go deeper into the, uh, the topic then of what makes for a good recruitment nurturing process. Because I, I, you, know, you pointed to the fact that maybe 70% plus 
of the candidates that a company or a large organization certainly is likely to already have on their database. So they're just spending money to buy the same data repeatedly. So what is candidate nurturing, first of all? Quite a few important ingredients um, in this. And in terms of background on why it's so important, it's a bit more than just the companies keep they keep spending money on you know, bringing the same people in over and over again. It's a bit more than that. Actually, about the fact that organi- organizations have such ephemeral relationships with individuals. They might talk to them four times in their career about potential job opportunities, and it could be the second or third or fourth time that they actually end up hiring them. And what we've got today is a real necessity for employers to build relationships with people right throughout their career from the point that they're 15 years old and considering working in engineering through to mm-hmm. the point that they're five years you know, retired and that's then they're definitely not coming back at that point. But you know, that's <laughs> a, a long period. That could be 50 years where an employer should be keeping in touch with those people because they're going to need to talk to them at lots of different parts of that 50 years about job opportunities, about becoming a customer, about referring people to the organization and that type of thing. So the recruitment needs to be much less transactional because it's a really wasteful, you know, repetitive and wasteful activity and much more about building relationships for the long term. Now, to do that, you need automation because a human can only maintain an average human can only, it's called Dunbar's number. They can maintain yeah. 150 relationships with people and actually un, actually know anything about them. So, you know, beyond 150 people, you know, you can't really maintain relationships with those individuals. So that's why Facebook is really great. That's why LinkedIn's really great. And that's why a proper, you know, nurture program and a proper marketing automation-led nurture program is something that employers should be doing a lot more of. A really important aspect to this is in 2019, LinkedIn told us that 80% of people on LinkedIn were not looking for a job. 20% of people were looking for a job. So what that means is that 80% of people are are not going to be interested in your job description, your employer brand, whether you offer beanbags and tennis tables and lunch served in the office. They're not going to care about any of that. So how does an employer maintain a relationship with those 80% of people? Well, they've got to be useful and relevant, and they've got to share things with them that are going to help them get ahead in their career. Insights, skills, networking, you know, things that are going to be, are going to generate goodwill without asking for something in return. And most recruitment teams find it difficult to comprehend that because they've got 300 live vacancies they've got to get filled. So they've got to carve out a small team of people who need to get this all rolling and they need to get it all started so that they can tap into talent pipelines or talent communities or whatever you want to call it. They can tap into that warm bench of people that they've got relationships with and they've been nurturing over time so that they don't have to remain addicted to net new, net new. I'm conscious I just gave quite a lot of a big answer to that, but there's, there's quite a lot of but, No, it was a brilliant answer, and it's led me on to something else that is 
really playing heavily on my mind and I think is critically important. Most managers, leaders, companies, salespeople play a finite game. And the game, uh, a finite game is one where one person wins, one person loses. You have success or you fail. And if you've not read it yet, James Carr wrote a fabulous book called Finite and Infinite Games. And that cast C-A-R-S-E. Mm-hmm. Simon Sinek has done one called The Infinite Game as well, which is a spin-off of the same thought. Now, in a finite game, you're trying to w- uh, win or not lose. Yeah. In an infinite game, you're trying to keep the game going. And what you've just described is a company who has a fi- uh, an infinite game mentality where what they're doing is they're increasing the size of the cake instead of trying to get a, a tiny, tiny sliver or a crumb of shrinking pie. And the net result of what you've just described is that it's part of their brand building because anything that touches the customer is marketing and branding. And the experience that people have of your company, of your brand, whenever you touch them, whether it's through an event, whether it's through your marketing, through your sales team, through content that you produce, is sends a message about who you are, what you stand for, why you exist, and why you are valuable. So it may be that at this point in my career, I don't need what you have, but I will have a warm feeling towards you if you've helped me in my early stage career. And then when I'm maybe in a buying position, I can move from being someone who consumes your content to being a customer and then maybe even being a supplier and possibly being an employee. And you've touched on something that's really important, that recruitment, I think, is absolutely at the heart of any company's branding. So I want to talk about that a little bit further, but I'd like your take on uh, that whole concept of the, the infinite game. You're 100% correct. I've never heard about the concept of finite games and infinite games, but it makes a lot of sense to me. It reminds me of a friend of mine. She works for Intel, and she's the head of recruitment marketing for Intel. And she talks about an infinity loop and the infinity loop is all about we want an ongoing relationship with people, whether they're working for us, whether they're considering working for us but not yet working for us, whether they're a contractor, whether they're permanent, whether they worked for us in the past, they're an alumni, and they might come back, and whether they've retired. And we want to, and there's benefits to having relationships with all of these people. And the infinity loop really sort of symbolizes the different stages where somebody could be at. It doesn't just go one way. You could go forwards and you could go back, but you're always somewhere in this infinity loop. And depending on where you are, that determines the type of relationship that Intel will want to have with you. And I think, I, I mean, I think about it a little bit more simply than that. I think about it in, the, in terms of a pipeline, just like a sales pipeline, where you've got in the you know, typical AIDA model, you've got awareness interest, desire, and action. In recruitment, we think about it in terms of awareness, interest, and application, something like that. So we we think about potential candidates as being cold, warm, and hire ready. Cold doesn't mean they're cold to the organization. Cold means that they're cold to a job opportunity right now. But that's where most people will be. 90% of software engineers today are not looking for a job. 
So what do we want to do with those software engineers who are not looking for a job that we might hire in the future? Well, we share useful, relevant things with them. They're going to help them be more successful, whether they're working for us or they're not working for us. Those who are warm might be interested in our employer brand. They're coming into the kind of consideration phase. And those that are higher ready, we want to make a you know, frictionless process for them. And we want to design a process which may become a bit one-to-one and there's some humans involved on both sides. But most people are not there. Most people are down in the cold phase. So how do we nurture those relationships? And I can give you an example of what Specsavers did because it's the, the best example I've got. Optometrists are, in the UK, the hardest hire to hire job to fill. Optometrists. Right. According to Indeed. That's statistics from Indeed from 2019 and 2020. And the head of recruitment, and it's the same in, Western, in most of Western Europe, the head of recruitment for Northern Europe was just getting on with his job one day. And uh, one of his colleagues came over and said, hey, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I have now managed to speak to every optometrist in Denmark. Bad news is I've managed to speak to every optometrist in Denmark and seven of them want to talk to us about jobs today out of the 1,500 or whatever it is that they spoke to. What that means (laughs) is I'm not entirely sure what I have to do because this has taken me two months to get to talk to all of them. And I don't think starting at the beginning again and going back through them to get a return of seven is the right thing to do. And so this is a guy called Nick Eaton, who's the head of, is the head of recruitment there. And he, he's sitting there going, yeah, no, we can't just go back and round them again, all A to Z or one to 1,500. We've got to do something different. And that was when he realized we need to take a different approach to recruitment here. And we've got to create a community. And he created a community called Green Club. And Green Club is a few web pages, log in, and when you log in, you've got access to continuous professional development. You've got access to content that's going to help you with your career as an optometrist. You've got access to joining events, which up until, of course, 2020, they were, all, they were offline. And now they're online. You can do it through the Facebook page and, and you can log in through Teams and access their events. But everything is about learning for optometrists. Doesn't mention spec savers anywhere. There's no recruitment call to action anywhere. The learning and development team at Specsavers is heavily involved in, you know, what should the content and the syllabus be and all that kind of thing. But the recruitment team is driving the interactions and they're making everything happen and they're building the relationships. And everybody knows subliminally that Specsavers is behind the scenes here and making it happen. So they do get the goodwill, but it's really not branded at all as a Specsavers initiative. Otherwise, people would be really turned off. So that, that's the best example of building relationships, building community, leading with value, and getting, some, getting your reward later. This, again, speaks to everything that I'm seeing in terms of the best in marketing and sales is about playing the infinite game, about starting conversations that have nothing in, uh, directly to do with your immediate motive to fill a vacancy, make a sale, get people to your webinar. And one of the best examples of this is Tesla versus Mercedes. Mercedes spent about, I think it was 750 or 900 bucks per new customer who bought uh, a Mercedes C-Class in 2019. And they sold 86,000 units. Tesla started a conversation around 
the environment, fossil fuels and internal combustion engines. And it cost them $6 per customer. And they sold 246,000 units pre-sold before they even manufactured one. And it was about creating conversation, community, being timely, being relevant, offering value, and moving into the sales conversation at the customer's pace. And again, recruitment, same thing. People are not ready to move. Uh, you know, they're probably happy or they're doing well or the timing is wrong. They're waiting for a big fat commission check or a deal to land or you know, they're just in the middle of a project. So unless you understand that you need to humanize this whole process, and the irony is it's the application, the partnership with technology that allows you to humanize at scale, to personalize at scale. But very few organizations do any of this well. In sales, what I see is companies investing in technology spaghetti, and they have 15 applications, most of which have crossover with one another. So at least half the license fees are wasted. They overburden people. They treat CRM actually is uh, little more than an audit tool for audit purposes. It's not actually used for the real purpose, which is to help salespeople sell more to more people for more money more often and sell them the right things instead of the wrong things. Because what it's not doing that well is it creates terrible behavior. And you see it in recruitment. You see candidate CVs landing on the desk of their own manager. You see people... Um, doing horrific things in the race to the bottom. You see people, uh, and I think it was your words, uh, incentivized to be unethical, to be transactional. So tell me this. What, if there was one piece of parting advice that you would give to a leader in terms of shifting their thinking and on a macro level, not just about recruitment, but about the whole way they communicate to their market, what would it be? Stop thinking about what, what you want to get and think about how you can earn the attention of the people you want to talk to. It's about earning something rather than paying for something. And most organizations don't do that. Most organizations, sales teams still don't do that, let alone their recruitment teams. It's really important to create community and it's really important to be useful and relevant. On that note, I think we can pretty much wrap up. Bloody brilliant. Thank you. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think location is a challenge. We're like physical location. I don't know whether I ever want to go back and work in an office again. I don't know if it's better to get my team all back together again. We're a small team. There's 19 of us, four in India and 15 in, in, in Glasgow. And I just don't know whether we've benefited from working from home or whether we have lost out by not being together. And I don't know whether the, I don't know whether the results of that are obvious yet. There's something else which is linked to that, which is as the world opens up more again, you know, I'm not going to go back to doing what I did. I, I spent 12 years traveling from Glasgow to London and Amsterdam and a couple of other places like every week. And I'm not going to go back to doing that. But you can see the way that people have got, have got uh, claustrophobia and they want to go and visit people and they want to go to conferences and they want to go and 
you know, visit their colleagues in different parts of the world and they want to go traveling. And, you know, I think a lot of people have got claustrophobia, but here's something that we're not talking about. A lot of people are going to get agoraphobia because the world's going to open up and they're going to be expected to go places and they're not going to want to do it because they become used to not going anywhere and the security and the virus-free environment that they've been forced to, to stay in. And I'm not so much struggling with that, so I'm not quite answered your question, but I think that this whole concept of location and where people are based and where they're spending their time is going to be a big problem in the second half of this year as the world starts to open up more. I think you're being optimistic that it's going to be the second half, but I'm erring more to March 22. But I'm a miserable old curmudgeon. I remember a, a good friend of mine invited me to stay with him over in Finland. And we went to his summer cottage on the lake. And for three days, nothing, no one. It was just us, a bunch of birch trees and a few birds and a couple of unfortunate pike that we caught. And I went to the airport in Yunsu and literally there were 12 people in it. And I started to feel claustrophobic and then landed in Helsinki. Mm -hmm. And there were about 300 people and I felt really oppressed. And then when I got to Heathrow, it was just an overwhelm. So that that is going to be an interesting shift. I think that the tendency is for human beings to swing one way or the other. We have a tendency to go to polar extremes. And I think there's a balance that will happen. But what I'm really excited about is the growth in collaborative technologies. So tools like Miro allow people to collaborate in ways that they never really could. And you combine that with video conferencing and some really well thought through virtual worlds, some of the uh, LMS platforms. And you start combining all of that, and you really don't need to be physically present for a lot of the stuff. Yes, human interaction, I think, important, but I think a lot of people place that, consider that to be their superpower, certainly in sales. They, you know, all these uh, road warriors, and they've not adapted. And that, I think, is the real challenge. It's that they have not been able to adapt because they're stuck in that old paradigm. Um, so I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. Um, I do believe that there's certain things have accelerated in the last year. And one of those mm. is the concept that sellers don't sell and buyers do buy. And so what I mean by that is that we need to lay out everything that somebody's going to want in order to do their own self-directed research and find out about your organization and your USPs and your pricing and you know all that type of thing. They don't want to talk to humans to get that. It's in the same in recruitment. You know, candidates don't want to talk to a recruitment consultant. The only person they want to talk to is the hiring manager who would be their boss and maybe some people that are doing the job. You know, that's that's who they want to talk to. And it's the same way in sales. We don't want to, we don't really want to talk to somebody that's got a job to sell us you know, a Volkswagen rather than a Ford. We want to we want to make our decisions on our own. And then by the time we've got down to our last three, we want to talk to the expert who's going to be able to ask us, you know, guide us on configuration. Uh, you know, at the very end, the very, very yeah. last processes. And that's the same in that's the same in recruitment. So I do think that the world's moved a little bit on that. And the concept of the road warrior is probably going to be less important than it was. And you're right. There's a lot of people whose superpower is they've got a great handshake. They've got great, you know, eye contact. They've got the ability to build rapport really quickly. And 
they're going to probably have less advantage than they have had in the past. I'm pretty sure about that. Well, I, I, in all honesty, the shift to virtual for me was packing up two plastic bags of bits and pieces and moving from my office to my conservatory. Didn't even break a stride. Sales have been up and it, it, it's just noise in people's heads. The reality is you can do the job without having to breathe someone else's air. I agree. It wasn't difficult for my entire company. It was pretty, there was a couple of people who had desktops in our office who we needed to work out a way of, you know, what did they need? Did they need alternative equipment or did we have to work out a way to get quite large desktops, like big Macs and things to their homes? And so there was a bit of... They fit in the back of a car. I it was it, yeah. It, I, it, I, I moved both my Macs. <laughs> exactly. That's how. That's how. That's how much of a. That's how much of a. You know, small challenge it really was. I do have one other thing. I'm. I am a little bit concerned about, which is just to slightly extend the topic about you know the way the world's been changing. I think that we're not really realizing yet that in a hundred years' time, there's going to be far less jobs than there are today. There's going to be far less jobs. People might not be working in jobs. So if you, take a, if you think about you know, the 3 million truck drivers in the USA, they're yeah. not all retraining as data scientists. They're just nope. not doing it. And I know that we are quite far away from their jobs being totally automated, but to get your lorry of Coca-Cola from the manufacturing plant to the city 100 miles away is not a job that a human needs to do, to reverse down the alleys inside the city and get the drop-offs happening, that's probably a job humans need to do. But to do the 100-mile journey from the factory to the outskirts of the city is not a job that, that humans are going to need to do in, the, in, in 10 years' time. So, no. so what happens to all these people? They, they're not going to retrain as data scientists. They become asteroid miners. I went to a talk a client of mine was doing on jobs of the future, and he ran through 300 different types. And one of them, the one that stuck in my mind, was being an asteroid miner. No one ever grew up thinking that in my lifetime, thinking that that's what they would do for a living. No, they didn't. But they didn't. This is that's the problem with recruitment as well. Though they didn't grow up thinking they want to work in recruitment. So that's one of the <laughs> one, of, one of the issues. You know, taking us back to what I was talking about earlier. Excellent. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm kicking off a movement in the community around the concept of sales a force for good, precisely because I want sales to be elevated. And recruitment is part of that. Recruitment is a subset of it. And what I would like to do is create an environment where all sales roles are ones that children can aspire to be. It becomes a profession. The investment community starts to look at investment as a way to help a company be successful. And in return, they make very good returns. Where managers and leaders are really focused on how do we create an environment where our employees are highly engaged, we become a destination employer, and salespeople are encouraging their friends, people they care about, to join their team. Where the managers of the future are being trained how to be managers instead of do what was done to them. And I think what has to happen is fusty old buggers like me have to be out of the way. And it's the uh, millennials and Gen Z that we really have to bring into that community and have them shift that thinking from finite to infinite. I'm excited, although I think it's a hell of a task. 
Yeah, I agree. It's a particular hell of an ask when you're talking about millennials and Gen Z who are progressively more used to automating everything within their lives and having less human contact, but you want them to be better human managers. It's a big challenge, but it's one that I firmly support as one that, that, that needs to happen. Excellent. Adam, two very quick questions. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Adam, age 23, what one choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that you know he'd have ignored but would have been beneficial? Right. Can I answer this in two ways? Can I, can I answer it at age yep. 13 and, and age 23? Yep. So at age, at age 13, it would be academia is going to help you in the future. Stop striving. <laughs> get, actually learn stuff is something that's really important for the future. It's important that you learn things because it gives you choices. Can I give you the answer my kids would give you to that? What else? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, I'm sure people told me that at the time, but if it was the the 43-year-old Adam telling the 13-year-old Adam, I might have listened. So at 23, oh, I know exactly what that would be. At 23, it would be, because that's when I did, really did value learning. And I looked up to people so much and I wanted to learn from everybody. And I treated my 20s like an extension of, of, of academia. And actually, when I was 23, I already had a lot of tools to be an entrepreneur. I had a lot of tools to go and build a business. And I thought I didn't. That's probably when I actually felt like learning from other people and taking a long time to really percolate was something that was important. But actually, I really underestimated myself. And I started my own business when I was 32. And that's when, that's the first time that I actually became really comfortable as a professional because I I wasn't being managed by somebody I probably didn't agree with all the time. And, you know, I could go and make all my... I was not a good employee. I just wasn't. And I spent too long being an employee. I was spending far far too much time trying to learn how to be a great employee when, in fact, with hindsight, having now worked for myself longer than I've worked for, I worked for other people, I just wasn't meant to. I didn't have the right personality for it. I was too entrepreneurial. I wanted to break the rules and do things differently. And, of course, that meant that that stalled my career as an employee working for other people. And it took, yeah. I started my own business when I was 32 because my mom died and she left a quite a big house to me and my sister. And in order to keep my mom's house, I needed to buy my sister's share of the house. And I just felt one day, I just felt I, I wanted, she wanted to do this house up over a long time and she died quite young. And uh, I wanted to just continue doing what she did. And I made an emotional decision to quit my job, to work for myself, to earn more money. And I probably should have done it when I was 23. Excellent. Thank you for that. Are you being influenced by any great content? Uh, What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think other people should pay heed to? Yeah, I I am, but I'm not entirely sure how relevant it is for everybody. I I listen to... It doesn't have to be. I listen to a podcast which is all about recruitment and recruitment technology and the future of work called the Chad and Cheese podcast. The Chad and Cheese podcast. 
Yeah, Chad. Chad uh, well, I'm so, doing a series on the future of work, so that's really very useful. Chad, Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman. They're two guys in America who get together three times a week, do a podcast, and you know they have a couple of beers when they're doing it, and it's a bit of like it's American version of lads banter a little bit, but you know it's not necessarily for everybody. They swear quite a lot. They describe it as HR's most dangerous podcast, and they've got machines going off and people screaming at the beginning of the intro. And they say exactly what they think. But yeah, no, it's a really good one. And then there's another one which which is re- real vital, real vital, real vital reading if you are interested in the future of work. And it's called Recruiting Brain Food. And yeah, I mean, it's probably two thirds is to do with recruitment and the future of recruitment. But yeah, probably half of it is about that. And half of it's about jobs which are being created and macro trends around employment and technology. And it's a newsletter. And it is, according to Google, it's the number one newsletter in HR. And it's called Recruiting Brain Food. And then the other thing that uh, is a bit more general is I tune into Bloomberg Technology every day. It's a program hosted by, normally hosted by a, a broadcaster called Emily Chang. And it's all about what's going on in Silicon Valley, really. And it's it's really excellent. Excellent. Adam, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Uh, I'm quite easy to find on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. If you just look up Adam Gordon Candidate ID, candidate with a candidate ID with a dot after the candidate. I'm easy to get hold of on email, adam at candidate.id. I'm not on Instagram, but I'll tell you, I've been asked a lot of times, what's the best use of Instagram for recruitment? And I always give the same answer, which is, it is by far the best place to go if you want to hire narcissists and sycophants. So um, (laughs) you're not going to find me there. (laughs) Uh, Well, there you go. Trump could move there from Twitter. Moving on. It hasn't happened, Uh, yeah. Uh, Excellent. Adam Gordon, thank you so much. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. Great fun. All the best, Marcus. Likewise. Thank you. So this is Marcus Karki signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hypergrowth, so the wheels don't come off and develop highly engaged and highly productive employees and clients who stick with you year after year after year. Let's schedule some time for a brief conversation. You can email me at marcus at last-last.com or DM me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.